found a little booklet last week called Famous Last Words. I really enjoyed it. General John Sedgwick, I've never heard of this man, but he was a commander of the army uh, in the Civil War, and at the Battle of the Wilderness, while other men were diving for cover from Confederate sharpshooters, General Sedgwick scoffed at the danger, stood up, and said they couldn't hit an elephant at this And those were his last words. <laughs> Obviously, they could, because that was it for General Sedgwick. He didn't plan on that, or he never would have stood up. Brendan Bayhan, the uh, Irish poet who was a drunkard and a revolutionary, uh, was dying in a hospital, and being in Ireland, a nun came to him to... Um, try to comfort him. And just as he was dying, he said, Bless you, sister. May all your sons be bishops. <laughs> now that, if you know anything about Bayhan, that, that is totally in character with how he lived his life. He was a radical. He was a revolutionary. He was a blasphemer. Uh, he was full of sarcasm. He was a mocker. Last thing he had to say was to a nun. Not, uh, well. Bing Crosby. His last words. That was a great game of golf, guys. And he died. Um, just after giving a performance, he went out with some friends and they, they played around. Yeah, just finished. He said, That was a great round of golf, guys. He was 20 yards away from the clubhouse and keeled over. Here's another one. Dwight Eisenhower on his bed said, I want to go. God, take me. Isn't that interesting? He had had uh, seven heart attacks. He was dying of congestive heart failure. He just wanted to go. Um, Metro Golden Mayer, Louis Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. On his deathbed, his last words were, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Poor Jewish kid clawed his way to the top. Wasn't worth it. Ludwig von Beethoven. Last words. I shall hear in heaven. Isn't that great? Because you know he lost his hearing, this great composer. And, but he kept writing music because he could hear it in his head. Now I had one more. I did have one more. Um, gosh, you know, you always want to have a strong finish. Those, those may be my last words. That was it. Oh, God, I'm really disappointed. I really thought I was going to finish strong there. Huh? Yeah, that was... 
Well, the reason I brought that up, guys, is that uh, we're going to look tonight at the last words of the nation of Judah under the kings. Because uh, we, we have been looking at the kings now since, uh, since the fall. And this, for me, has been a fascinating study because, as we have said in here many times, um, we're looking at history. And it was Hegel who said, history teaches us that men never learn from history. But we're looking at a nation that God chose, the nation of Israel. And as you look at the history of Israel, you look at the demise of a nation. A a nation that God uh, brought out of a man named Abraham, a man who was a pagan. Abraham did not seek God. God sought Abraham, told him he would bless him, um, told him he wanted to make a covenant with him. And as you read the Old Testament, so much of it, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, is, is about the nation of Israel. And we have been looking at the kings, and we have been looking at the prophets, because every king had a prophet. Um, by way of just review, Uh, Saul and David and Solomon, the first three kings. And then the nation split. Now, if you pull out your chart, this is a chart of the divided kingdom of Israel. In the north, the first king is Jeroboam. Now, Rehoboam in the south was the son of Solomon. But as we have pointed out, In about 72 hours, Solomon's son Rehoboam basically uh, pretty much destroyed everything that Solomon and David had worked to achieve. So the nation split, and they split into two nations, Israel in the north with ten tribes. Their first king was Jeroboam. Uh, In the south, you had Rehoboam. The nation was called Judah, along with the tribe of Benjamin. All of the kings, and as you look through this chart, all of the kings in the northern kingdom, and there were 20 of them, all of them were wicked. In the southern kingdom, there were 20 kings, and eight of the 20 could be considered good kings. Um, When when you go through this, you will note on page 3 that in 722, The northern kingdom comes to an end. They are taken into captivity by Assyria, and they are done, and they are finished. The ten northern tribes, sometimes you'll hear the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well, they were were taken off into captivity because king after king after king after king after king refused to listen to the prophets, refused to honor God, refused to serve God. They went after other gods. They went after Baals. They were worshiping golden calves. They were doing all kinds of things that were sexually promiscuous, but, but they just basically shut God out and lived as though God didn't exist. And they were warned, and they were warned, and they were warned, and they were warned. And in 722, they were taken off in the captivity. And that was the end of the northern kingdom. Now, if you've been here for our study, uh, you'll notice that at about the time that the northern kingdom came to an end, if you look in the southern kingdom, Hezekiah took the throne. Now, we spent several weeks on Hezekiah. Um, 
Hezekiah was a godly king, and under Hezekiah, there was a revival, and there was a spiritual transformation. There was a change that took place in the nation because Hezekiah decided he was going to lead. Now, Hezekiah, you've got to understand something. Israel or, or, or Judah was on track to be judged just as the northern kingdom. But what happened was is that one guy stood up and one guy said, I'm going to follow the Lord and, and I'm going to honor him and I'm going to undo what my father did. Hezekiah's father was a wicked man. But Hezekiah, at the time the northern kingdom is being taken off by the Assyrians, he says, I'm going to follow the Lord. And as a result, the nation of Judah continues. Uh, one man can make a difference. That's very, very possible for one man to make a difference. Um, one man can make a difference in a positive way. One man can make a, di a difference in a negative way. Uh, a friend of mine, Dave Johnson, is a policeman in San Jose, California. And Dave told me a story years and years ago that I uh, included in my book, Point Man. And it... Um, well, let me just read his story. Uh, Dave wrote a book about his experiences as a police officer and the different things that he saw and the different people that he encountered. Uh, he was called one morning to a family disturbance. He says, when I pulled up, the woman was crying and yelling at her husband who was standing with his hands in the pockets of greasy overalls. I noticed homemade tattoos on his arm, usually a sign that someone had been in prison. I was glad that my backup had arrived. I stepped from my patrol car, and as I walked towards the two, I could hear the woman yelling at her husband to fix whatever he had done to the car so she could leave. He made no reply, but only laughed at her with a contemptuous laugh. She turned to me and asked me to make him fix the car. Uh, my partner broke in, and we split the two up so that we could find a solution to the problem. I began talking to the husband, who said that his wife was having an affair and she was leaving. I asked him if they had gone for counseling, and he said that he was not interested. He went on to say that he was interested, however, in only getting his things back. He said that his wife had hidden them from him. I asked his wife about his things, and she said she wouldn't give them to him until she got one of the three VCRs that they owned. I found out later that the things consisted of the narcotics that he dealt in. The other officer went to the wife's car and began looking under the hood to see if he could spot the trouble. The husband walked over, took the coil from his pocket, and handed it to the officer. He then told his wife that she could have one of the VCRs if he could have his things. She finally agreed and went into the house. As she entered the house, I noticed two little girls standing in the driveway, watching the drama unfold. They were about 8 and 10 years old, and then they moved to the doorway of the home. Both were wearing dresses and clung to Cabbage Patch dolls. Um, at their feet were two small suitcases. My eyes couldn't leave their faces as they watched the two people that they loved most tear each other apart. The woman emerged with the VCR in her arms and went to the car where she put it into the crowded back seat. She turned and told her husband where he could find his things. 
they both agreed that they had equal shares of the things they had accumulated in 10 years of marriage. Then, and as I stood by in unbelief, I watched the husband point to the two little girls and say to the wife, well, which one do you want? Without any apparent emotion, the mother chose the older girl. The girls looked at each other as the older one picked up her suitcase and then climbed into her mother's car. I had to stand and watch as the littlest girl, still holding her cabbage patch doll in one hand and her suitcase in the other, watched her big sister and her mother drive off. I watched as teams streamed down her face in total bewilderment. Um, those tears were tears of unbelief. The only comfort she received was an order from her father to go into the house as he turned to talk with some friends. There I stood, the unwilling witness to the death of a family. That is a tragic story. That is repeated hundreds and hundreds of times a day in our nation. Which one do you want? Huh. That's what happens when a nation turns from God. That's what happens when a nation forgets its foundations. That's what happens when we begin to be more concerned about ourselves than other people. You see, it is true that one man can make a difference. When one man decides that he is going to follow Christ, and when he decides that he is going to do what's right, regardless, it makes a huge difference. Maybe you've heard Tony Evans tell his story. Tony and I were speaking together in uh, Alabama a couple of weekends ago, and I heard him tell a story again. Uh, Tony grew up in Baltimore. And his father was a longshoreman in Baltimore. And uh, uh, Tony's memories of uh, growing up in that home were his mother and father uh, fighting and yelling. And it was a terrible existence. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. But his father started listening to the radio. And he started listening to a man named uh, M.R. DeHaan. Some of you remember uh, Mr. DeHaan. Uh, uh, radio Bible class, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, he had a voice full of gravel. If you've ever heard him, you know, I mean, he had just an unbelievable voice. It was just so unique. But he preached the word. And what happened to Tony's dad was that don't, Tony's dad, as he would listen to M.R. DeHaan, he heard the gospel, and he gave his life to Christ. Um, and what he would do every night when he and his wife would go to bed, after they were in bed, he would slip downstairs and um, he would spend, spend time praying that God might make a change in his family and that God might make a difference in his family. He never said anything about it. He never announced it. He just, every night, went downstairs in the darkness. Everyone else was asleep and he would pray. This went on for over a year. One night, he followed his custom, went downstairs, was in the living room praying. He'd only been there a few minutes, and then his wife came down the stairs, and he thought, oh boy, here we go. He was ready for it. She knew that he knew she was going to let him have it. And she walked in the room, and she said, 
What, what has happened to you? What has happened to you? Over the last year, I have tried to make your life a living hell. But every time I do, you love me. And you respect me. And you honor me. Tell me about this. And tell me what's happened. And tell me how I can have it in my life. And that night, he led his wife to Christ. Now, Tony was 10 years old. Dad's a longshoreman. His folks were headed for a divorce. But you know what happened? One man stepped up, heard the gospel, and said, Lord, I want to follow you. And you know what, Lord? What would you think he was praying for down there every night? Well, you know what he was praying for. He was praying that God would heal his family. He was praying that God would heal his marriage. He was praying for his kids. Never could have imagined what God's done. So you, you, most of you guys know Tony. You know the story. Uh, Tony became first young man in his family to go to college. Then he was the first African-American to go to Dallas Seminary. First African-American to earn a doctorate at Dallas Seminary. Got a church, you guys know, not too far from here on the other side, downtown. Acres and acres, 7,000 people there. National radio ministry. Uh, and as Tony said the other night, he said, you know how that all started? It started with one man. And Lord, I want to do what's right. His dad could have left. His dad could have done what was best for him. His, but his dad didn't do that. Now, let me tell you something about Tony's dad. Tony's dad was a king. He was king of his family. We don't tend to use that term. We say you're a husband. We say you're a father. Well, you're a king. That's just, that's just another term. Because when you're a husband, when you're a father, you're responsible for a family. A king is responsible for a kingdom. Well, your kingdom is your home and your family and your castle is your apartment or your house or whatever it is. We don't tend to use the word king. But guys, you know what? In a real sense, we're kings just as these Old Testament guys were kings. We just don't use the term. We have people who are dependent on us. We have people before God whom we are leading. And the way that we lead them makes a difference. As we saw, the northern kingdom comes to an end, but in the southern kingdom, one guy stands up and says, I'm going to follow the Lord. And it made a huge difference. So we study these men not just to study history, but we study these men so that we can learn how to be better kings in our families, how we can better serve our families, how we can better serve our wives, how we can better serve our community. Because Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all you see. If you look at the chart, after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh screwed up big time, horrible king, but then he repented. Then Amon took the throne, who was a horrible king, but then Josiah takes the throne. And we looked at Josiah last week. Josiah was a great king, one of the greatest right up there with Hezekiah. But as we saw last week, Josiah was killed in battle. And when Josiah passed off the scene, Judah was on its last legs. You'll see a chart attached at the end of uh, that chart called the last, excuse me, the last five kings of Judah. 
And at the top, you have Josiah. And then we're going to have three of his sons and one of his grandsons. Now, Donald Duck had three nephews. <laughs> Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Um, I'm tempted to call the sons and the grandson of Josiah, Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Screwy. Because they all four screwed up. It's a tragic story. And they, these four brought the kingdom of Judah to an end because they were foolish men. Now, if you look at the top, you'll see Josiah, great, great godly king, reigned 31 years. But then you come to Jehoahaz. Uh, that's number two. Now, in your Bible, you'll find this account in 2 Kings 23, uh, through uh, beginning with verses 24 through 30. And then you'll also find it in 2 Chronicles 36. Now, let's go to 2 Chronicles 36, because we'll take a look at each of these uh, men who were the last legs, the Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Screwy of Judah. And it's somewhat of a, of, of a, of a tragedy, quite frankly. Uh, if you look at Second Chronicles 36, verse 1, then the people of the land took Joahaz, or he's also known as Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in place of his father in Jerusalem. Now, he's on your chart. He's number two. He reigned for just three months. Then go to number three. The next son is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is found in verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. Uh, his given name was Eliakim. He reigned, that's in the previous verse. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight uh, of the Lord. Oh, by the way, uh, Joahaz, the first king, in 2 Kings 23, 32, it says, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so far, two for two, these are evil sons who are not following the Lord. Um, number four is Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, or Coniah. Uh, he was Jehoiakim's son, so he was Josiah's grandson. He reigned three months. And um, he was taken prisoner to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he, he, he is found in um, verse 9 of Second Chronicles 36. Then notice, if you would, verse 11, we come to Zedekiah. He was the last king of Judah before they were taken into captivity and hauled off to Babylon. Zedekiah reigned 11 years. He was taken prisoner to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, something you should understand, going back on the chart, um, go back to the last four kings on the previous chart. Because after Josiah, I'm on page four of the divided kingdom. Let's read the description that's there. Jehoahaz reigned for three months, beginning in 609. Then Jehoiakim got on the throne what, what did he do? Well, he burned part of God's word given to Jeremiah. 
He was a puppet king for Egypt, and then he fled Babylon. He watched gold and articles taken from the temple to Babylon, and he saw the first exile in which Daniel was taken. Now, you've got to understand something. Just as the northern king came to an end, the kingdom came to an end and was hauled off to Assyria, now the southern kingdom is coming to an end, and they're going to be hauled off to Babylon. So there are going to be three exiles to Babylon that's all going to occur under these guys, under these sons of Josiah, in three stages. The first stage happens under Jehoiakim. And Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were called in Babylon, they went in the first wave. They were just teenagers. So they went to Babylon. All right? Then, under Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, he reigned three months. He saw the next exile to Babylon. Then, under Zedekiah, he reigned, ruled for 11 years. He saw the temple burned and Jerusalem destroyed, was tortured, and carried away in the final exile to Babylon. It's, uh, it's a sad story. John Salehammer says of these last kings, the chronicler's emphasis in recounting the days of the last Davidic kings, the sons of David, is to show that their dominion was finished and that the real power now rested in the hands of foreign empires, Egypt and Babylon. Uh, hey, think back to when Solomon was running things. Think of the glory. Think of the majesty. Think of the power. Think about when power was transferred from David to Solomon. Uh, Israel was a power. They were to be reckoned with. They were prosperous. They had the blessing of God upon them. And they have been reduced to nothing but a puppet kingdom, to a, uh, to a joke, quite frankly, um, I like, what, uh, I like what Wearsby says. Warren Wearsby says, After Josiah's death, the kings of Judah were weaklings, mere puppets in the hands of the politicians in Jerusalem or the nations around Judah. The last king was Zedekiah, and then the nation fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. And then Wearsby asked the question, Why did Judah decay? And see, that's really the word, is decay. As the northern kingdom decayed, so the southern kingdom decayed. Uh, wasn't it Toynbee that identified 24 or 25 great civilizations? And he talked about the different phases that they went through. Uh, uh, one historian said, the death of every civilization is a suicide. That's true. The death of every civilization is a suicide. What happens to them? They wind up killing themselves. They, they wind up taking their own life because what makes them strong, they depart from. Um, about the time that our original 13 states adopted their new constitution, in the year 1787, Anne Alexander Tyler, who was a, a history professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, had this to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years prior. Here's what he said. A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Uh, I think it was John Adams who said, that a democracy is dependent upon 
a people, a people who are moral and who are good. You see, democracy doesn't work without certain principles. Why is it that we're having such a tough time establishing a democracy in Iraq? You want to know why? Because they've got some fundamental beliefs. They've got some foundational beliefs that are different than, hist- than historically what was believed in this country. So you've got to build on something. You, freedom just doesn't appear. Freedom comes out of something. There must be a base. There must be a foundation. Um, and then he goes on and he talks about the fact that there are reasons for the downfall, uh, down, the downfall of, a, of a democracy. He says, during the 200-year cycle, nations progress through the following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. That describes what happened in the northern and southern kingdom. It also describes what's happening to us. Because, you see, we're no different than anybody else. Um, there have been great civilizations. There have been great nations. Um, but those who were great in the past are not great now. And we all sense. We all have a sense of what's happening. We're, we're not foolish. We understand the scriptures. And, and, in, and in making this study, we see that nations rise and nations what? They fall. The rise and fall of great nations. And there's no secret to it. Uh, quite frankly, uh, it's, it's spiritual in its core. That's the issue. Um, I got stuff from last week I didn't use. I brought it all tonight. I'm loaded for bear, and my watch is working tonight. Uh, we're concerned about our nation. But I mentioned last week that I'm not just concerned about the nation, I'm concerned about the church. Because one of the things that, hap- that is happening to the evangelical church is that the evangelical church is so focused on results and we're so focused on getting people that we are watering down truth in order to accommodate ourselves to as many people as possible. Uh, uh, Al Moeller is president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, and he's a, he's a great theologian, and he is a uh, great analyst of our culture. Uh, Moeller is talking about a movement that is called, called post-evangelicalism. Uh, that means, of course, after evangelical. In other words, there are some guys who are Christians that have churches that are now, if you believe in the scriptures and the deity of Christ, what we believe, we'd be called evangelicals. But now there are some guys that are trying to move ahead. They're post-evangelicals. And they've got churches, and they're trying to reach people and all this stuff. And he talks about this group. And this is a movement, and it's significant. Um, and he talks about some of the characteristics. And I'll just pick up a paragraph. Um, He's quoting one of the writers, a guy named Tomlinson, who's a pastor. 
He says, according to Tomlinson, the post-evangelicals have escaped this trap and no longer try to present the gospel as a meta-narrative or comprehensive truth claim. Did you catch that? They no longer try to present the gospel as a comprehensive truth claim. Okay, now follow this. At this point, the true contours of post-evangelical thought becomes clear. For traditional evangelicals, he asserts, truth is rarely seen as problematic. I'd agree with that. We think the Bible is true. We think the Bible is the word of God. We think the Bible is the inerrant word of God. You see? Uh, That's not problematic for us. But as Tomlinson explains, post-evangelicals feel uneasy with such a cut-and-dry approach and find themselves instinctively drawn toward a more relative understanding of truth. It's everywhere, guys. It's everywhere. You know, I, I, almost every weekend I'm out speaking somewhere. And I get invited to all kinds of churches. I, I mean, it cracks me up where I wind up going. I mean, it does. It cracks me up. They didn't invite me. And, uh, but you know what? I'll go. Unless they're just absolute heretics, I'll go. And because, hey, I'm going to preach and I'm getting on a plane and I'm getting out of town. <laughs> I mean, what are they going to do? Lynch me? So I go in and, and sometimes I got to read on where they are. And if they don't believe something, I make sure that I hit it pretty hard. Because I think as long as I do that, God will continue to give me favor. And as long, but when I start compromising and not wanting to offend anybody, I'm in trouble. Uh, and I have to get a real job. <laughs> and I've never been able to hold a real job. So, Now, what about the Bible? Tomlinson acknowledges, I think it's fair to say that post-evangelicals have mixed feelings about the Bible. Hmm. Well, we have mixed feelings about you then. That's, that was just my comment. That wasn't in the text. On the one hand, they have immense respect for the Bible and are keen to rediscover its relevance for their lives and world. On the other hand, they have a backlog of negative feelings about the way they have seen the Bible used. You know what that is? That's nonsense. That's just ridiculous. What, what, what brought down... What brought down... Uh, Israel and Judah. Well, a lot of things brought them down, but one of the things that brought them down was that they wandered from the truth. They drifted from the truth. Maybe you saw this week that the student newspaper at Baylor, the editorial board at the Baylor student newspaper came out in favor of homosexual marriage at Baylor. Hmm. Now, the president of Baylor came out publicly today and uh, reprimanded them. But Baylor's got a problem. They got a big problem. Uh, And quite frankly, one of the problems at Baylor for a long time has been their wavering on the inerrancy of the Word of God. You see, you can't build a great Christian university if you waver on the integrity of the Word of God. You can't do it. Now, if you want the applause of the academic world and you want the guys at Harvard and Yale to applaud you, then you better cave in. But if you want God to be honored and Jesus' gospel to be preached, then you better not cave. 
You see, that's what happens when you begin the cave. You see. So those are the post-evangelicals. Um, there's an erosion of truth. That's what happened in Israel, and that's what happened in Judah. Let's, um, let's go to Second Chronicles. We're there, but let's go back to Second Chronicles 36. We looked at Zedekiah in verse 11. Now, here's the last king, all right? Zedekiah, I'm in 2 Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. So who's the prophet? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is laying it out. Jeremiah is throwing fastballs high and inside, trying to save these guys. They won't listen. 13, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Now, did this guy know the truth? Yeah. He just didn't want to do it. Furthermore, catch this, all of the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to get into verse 15. We're going to get into the reasons for the decay, all right? This is really important. Have you ever gone to the dentist, and he tells you, gosh, you got a problem. That's just not a cavity, but you're going to need a root canal. And then what he does is that he begins to explain to you everything that's gone wrong, and he begins to explain to you how you got yourself in that position, and he begins to explain things to you that, quite frankly, you don't really want to know. But even as he's explaining to them, to you, you are feeling incredibly guilty because you didn't floss in the morning and then again in the evening. Have you ever had that experience? And you're in great pain, and you know he's going to even bring more pain into your life because you were slovenly in your responsibilities towards that tooth. There's a reason for the decay, is what the dentist is trying to say to you. Now, here are the reasons for the decay, beginning with verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But now catch this. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's a tragic statement. No remedy. You see, there's a point, guys. There is a point where there's no remedy. There's a point where God in his mercy and his kindness, and this is going on for hundreds of years, you see. You know what's interesting to me? The northern kingdom lasted a little over 200 years. The southern kingdom, because they had a few revivals here and there, they went about 330, 345 years, somewhere in that range. Okay? What would happen is, the Lord would speak to them. He would send the prophets, but they'd mock the prophets. They'd blaspheme. They would ignore. God, in his mercy, was trying to save them, and he was trying to redeem them. But there's a point where there is no remedy. And this is where they are in Second Chronicles 36. So it tells us what happened. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon 
who slew, now catch this, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. That's the temple. And had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God. Remember that, remember that temple that Solomon constructed? You remember the men whom God gave a gift of craftsmanship to? Remember the lavers that sat on top of the bowls? The, 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 the majesty of the craft just spoke of the glory of God. When the queen of Sheba saw that temple, the Bible says there was no spirit left in her. It was an amazing structure, the most glorious structure on the face of the earth. And what's happening? All the articles of the house, great and small, and the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of the officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire, destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Um, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy 28, please? Deuteronomy chapter 28. What I want to show you is that this uh, tragic end to the nation of Judah in the land which God had promised to Abraham, and now they're going to be exiled into Babylon. What I want to say to you guys is this was suicide. They did this to themselves. Deuteronomy 28, and I referred to it last week. Deuteronomy 28. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, God is speaking to the nation. Now, this is under Moses. Uh, the law had been given, and, and Moses is speaking to his nation. They have come out of Egypt where they were in bondage. They're going into the promised land. Now, they had to wait 40 years because of the unbelief of 10 of the 12 spies. Um, Deuteronomy, by its very title, Deuteronomos is second. Deutero is second. Nomos is law. This is Deuteronomy's book of the second law. And as I went over a few weeks ago, what he's doing here, when the 10 spies rebelled against God and said, we can't go into land because we can't take those giants, their sons were around them. Sons who were four, five, six, and seven. Now it's 40 years later. Those spies have died off. The sons are 44, 45, 46, 47. Now they're the leaders of the nation. Moses is restating the law for a second time to a new generation. So some of you that have sons that are that age, all right? Think of them at, at, at 45 and 46 and 47. Uh, that's the context of what's going on here. He's speaking to these leaders because before long, they're going to go into the promised land under Joshua. This is, a, this is an incredible chapter. Everything that we've studied on the kings, everything about the obedience and disobedience of the kings and the exile of the northern kingdom and the exile of the southern kingdom all hinges on Deuteronomy 28. Here's what it says. Now it shall be, and this, I'm going to read this, and this takes a little time, all right? 
You guys got a minute? Okay, good. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Now, let me ask you this. Where are they in 2 Chronicles 36? They're at the very bottom. Okay. That's not what needed to happen. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. You ever had a car on the freeway overtake you? Sure you have. I had it driving over here today. I had a guy overtake. I looked in my mirror, and he was 100 yards behind me, and two seconds later, he's overtaking me. God wanted to bless them. God was going to pursue them and overtake them and catch them so that he could bless them. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if, what? You obey the Lord. Now catch the blessings. Here's what God said he'd do for these guys. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground. He's talking about children. He's talking about cattle and goats and sheep and he's talking about vegetables. God will bless you everywhere you turn. And then he says this, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Now, they're in the land in 2 Chronicles 36, but they're having to leave. It's never had to happen. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Isn't that amazing? The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. Well, in 2 Chronicles 36, what are they? They're the tail. And you only will be above, and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. You know what, guys? That's a pretty good offer. That, that's a pretty good deal. What God basically said to these guys is, hey, listen, if you'll obey me, if you'll walk in my ways, I'm going to pull up a dump truck of favor and goodness and blessing, and I'm going to dump it right in your front yard. And before you can spread that out, I'm going to bring another dump truck in. I'm going to bring another load. There are going to be constant loads of blessing coming into your life if you'll just walk with me and obey me. Verse 15, but it shall come about. Uh, this chapter is what's called the blessings 
and the curses. Okay? But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I am charging you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And you say, well, this is pretty rough. This is, hey, let me tell you something. If you're a good father, this is what you do with your kids. If you're a good father, what you basically say to your kids is, the more responsibility you show me, the more blessing and privilege you get. The more responsibility I see from you, the, when I see that obedient spirit and that good attitude, when I see your mother being honored and respected, you're going to get more rope, more rope, more rope, because you're showing me you can handle it. But if you're disobedient and if you're disrespectful and if you don't come home on time and if you don't go to bed when we say to go to bed, then you know what's going to happen? I can't bless you. I'm going to have to, we don't use the term, but basically what we're going to do, we're going to curse them. We're going to take something away from them. You see, if you're a good dad, that's what you do. 16. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed. Now, now, before I read this, I don't know about your Bible, but I got two full pages of curses. And I only had two-thirds of a page of blessing. In fact, I've got one, two, three full pages of curses versus three-quarters of a page. In other words, guys, what I'm trying to tell you is that the curses, there were three to four times as many curses as there were blessings. Because what God was trying to do was let them know how serious he was about this. Uh, cursed you shall be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body. Now, now here's what I want to say to you. I'm not going to read all these, but here's what I want you to note. Is that the curses get more intense. The principle is this. If you're disobedient, all right, you're going to be reprimanded. This is what we do with our kids. You disobey me, you're going to get reprimanded. Now, if you bow your back to me and you keep it up, I'm going to reprimand you again. It's going to be a little more stringent. And then if we do it again, it's going to be a little more stringent. This is what we do. This is what God does with us. In other words, God didn't want this to happen. Uh, if you respond to me, if you obey me, if you repent, great, we're back to blessing. But if you continue to bow your neck, I'm going to have to keep coming on to you. I'm going to have to keep bringing the curses to you. And I don't want to do that. But he lists them. And they get more intense with each, with each, each curse. Um, look at 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke, and all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you've forsaken me. He talks about pestilence. He's talking about consumption. Um, he talks about drought in verse 23 and 24. He talks about being defeated in battle in 25. 27, he talks about boils and tumors and scabs and itches. In 28, he talks about madness. Uh, in verse 30, he talks about a wife being raped. Uh, none of this needed to happen. Uh, verse 31, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes. Look at verse 32. Your sons and daughters will be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. Hey, can I say this to you? All the kings knew Deuteronomy 28. All of them. They all knew about it. And, and as, as you go down through this list of curses, 
Look at 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, and as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, you will have no respect for the old, who will have no respect for the old, no sure favor to the young. What did they do in the temple before their eyes? They cut down the young people. Look at 52. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls. What he's talking about here is exactly what happened. It happened with the northern kingdom, with Assyria. It happened with the southern kingdom, with Babylon. Now, you say, well, this applies to the nation of Israel. Yes, it does. Can I also say this to you? When you read the Old Testament, when you read the book of Isaiah, God not only judged Israel and Judah, but God judged other nations. God judged Egypt. God judged Assyria. God judged Babylon. Uh, God judged Greece. God judged Rome. Uh, you know what, guys? God's going to judge us as a nation. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, as a nation, we're in trouble. We've been talking about this the last few weeks because things are accelerating so rapidly. Now, in the midst, here's what I want to say to you. It'll give you some hope, all right? In the midst of judgment, and judgment comes incrementally, all right? People don't, when September 11th happened, I was amazed because that night, Congress got together and they had a service where they prayed together. And I was driving over here, and Lloyd John Ogilvie, who at that time was chaplain of the Senate, he used to be pastor of Hollywood Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, California. There are Christians in Hollywood. I'm telling you, he was flat out praying. And he was praying right out of the Old Testament. And he was praying, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, then they will hear from heaven. Then I will hear from heaven. And then I will heal their land. And I mean, you got guys that don't agree on anything. They're bound before Almighty God. Why? Because we'd been humbled. You see. You know what September 11th should have brought to our nation? It should have bought, brought great repentance. And you remember the Sunday after September 11th? They literally turned people away from this church. They turned them away from Prestonwood. They turned them away. Basically, every church in Dallas turned people away. Because people were coming to church who never came to church. You know why? Because God had their attention. Because our prosperity and our way of life and what we think always will be there suddenly was, was, was threatened. And people were scared to death. All over America, people were turned away from church. How many of those people were back the next Sunday? Not a whole lot. So what's it going to take? Here's the good news. Whenever God has judged a nation, there have been a group of people within that nation that God has blessed and that God has taken care of and God has provided for. You know what those people are called? They're called Baptist. No, I think I said that here already, didn't I? A few weeks ago. Yeah, I didn't get much of a response there. Uh, 
They're called the remnant. The remnant. Um, now, I'm not trying to be real negative with you guys. And you can say, man, this sounds pretty. This, you know what? This, this, this sounds pretty discouraging. I would agree. It sounds pretty discouraging. But when a man is walking with the Lord, we, we read it. Isn't it Second Chronicles 16.9? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. See, when judgment comes, hey, you know what? Daniel was alive when judgment came. Daniel was hauled off. Now, let me ask you something. You say, oh, that's a terrible thing. What's going to happen? You know what? I don't know what's going to happen. When's it going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. But I'll tell you this. Something's going to happen. What September 11th should have produced was repentance. All we got out of it was patriotism. You see? Hey, I'm all for the flag. And you are too. But let me tell you something. You better be for the cross before you're for the flag. You've heard the phrase, my country, right or wrong? You know what? A country can be wrong. Bonhoeffer loved Germany. He loved his country. But there was unbelievable wickedness going on in this country. So some Christian men stood up. Some of them were martyred. Because, you see, we love Christ before anything. Before wife, before children, before country. You see? Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Daniel was part of the nation when they were carried off in the captivity. Now, here's what tends to happen. So you're telling me we're going to get judged in all this? I think biblically we will. Well, what's going to happen? I don't know. When's it going to happen? I don't know. But can I say this to you? If you're around when it happens, let me say this to you. You walk with God and God's hand will be all over you. God's hand will be on your family. You say, well, well, he got carried off in the captivity. Yes, he did. But you know what? You know why he got carried off in captivity? Because God, God had a work for him to do in Babylon. See, the sovereign hand of God was all over Daniel. So you say, well, judgment. What if the worst happens? What if the worst happens? God is still in charge of your life, and God is still sovereign. If judgment were to come, hey, let me tell you something about Daniel. Judgment did not interrupt God's plan for Daniel. Judgment cooperated with God's plan for Daniel. See, what happens, guys, is when we hear this stuff, and see, the tendency, quite frankly, is not to teach it. Uh, if you want to have a lot of people come in, and you want to grow a church, uh, you tend not to do a series for 12 weeks on judgment. Oh, let's get up this morning and get some Krispy Kremes and go hear about the, uh, uh, about the southern kingdom being carried off into uh, Babylon. And then we'll have lunch afterwards and we'll play in the park. You don't want that on a Sunday. That's a downer. But as 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things were written for our instruction. Okay? We all know in our hearts, in our guts, we sense we're in trouble as a nation. I, tell you, I love this stuff. Because you see what happens, things are really bad, really, really bad. And then, and then you get a guy, you get a leader who stands on the word of God. And doesn't care what anybody thinks. 
you see? And people hate his guts. And, and people don't like him. And they do everything they can do to overthrow him and all that. Well, hey, I'm for him. I, I am. I'm just telling you that. That's a, that's a gift that we have someone like that right now. But we're not going to have him forever. And he's not perfect. So we pray for him. Who are we going to get after that? I don't know. But it could be real bad. Well, if it's real but Listen, I'll tell you who we get, who God chooses that we get. God, God raises up rulers and he sets them down. You know who's going to win the election in November? Forget hanging Chad. It's who God says is going in. Well, who's going to go in 2008? Who's going to? The person that God has determined before the foundations of the world, that's who's going in. And you can caucus all you want. And you can spend money and raise money, but that's who's going in because God's in charge. Now, this stuff can get a little fearful, a little anxiety. Let me tell you something. He's running the show. He's running the show. So what are you doing with you like this? You know what I think you do? You just walk with God. You don't have to be depressed. You don't have to be. You get up and say, Lord, I give you my life all over again today. I want to be your guy. You know what, Lord? I want your favor in my life. And, and Lord, I want your blessing in my life. And Lord, I thank you that even the negative things I'm dealing with, that you brought those into my life because you're going to use those to make me stronger. And you're going to use those to mature me in Christ. So Lord, give me wisdom to navigate those things because I'm really dealing with some stuff and I'm, I'm fighting off a little depression. I'm under some pressure, you know. But, but Lord, I, I, I give it all to you. I give my family to you, my business. I give it all to you. Let me tell you something. The hand of God's all over you, man. You see? And then he'll just navigate you. He'll just walk you through. And what he has determined for you and for your life is going to take place. See, what, this is what you call building on the rock. The nation may collapse. That doesn't mean your family collapses. The faithfulness of God doesn't collapse. Uh, believe it or not, this chapter, this is a tough story. It ends with hope. Isn't that amazing? Let's, let's just look at the last couple of verses, and you'll see the hope. Because even as they're being carried off into exile, back in 2 Chronicles 38, it ends in hope. And God tells them, he tells them what's going to happen. They're going to be carried off. Let me get to 2 Chronicles 38 here in my new Bible with the pages that stick together. Actually, it's 36, isn't it? I'm going to look at verse 21. Uh, it, it says that they're going to be carried away to Babylon in 20 to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the Lord has enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. You know what that's about? In Israel, there was not only a Sabbath day, there was a Sabbath year. And every seventh year, they weren't to work the land. They weren't to work crops. They were to let the land rest. That's kind of a scary thing. And you know what? They never did it. So basically, they ignored this principle. You know how long they ignored it? They ignored it for 490 years. For 490 years, they never observed the Sabbath year. Now, if you take 490 years and you figure out how many Sabbath years they ignored, you know how many years that was? 70. How long were they going to be in captivity in Babylon? 70 years. God was going to let the land rest. 
Had they obeyed God? No. All right, fine. Then we'll do it the hard way. You go to Babylon, I'm going to rest the land. At the end of the 70 years, look at verse 22. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and he also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord God be with him and let him go up. And then you go to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And what happens is those people that have been exiled in Babylon for 70 years and Persia came and took over Babylon in the interim, Cyrus and Jeremiah prophesied that Cyrus would do this. He said, now go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. Even when they were carried off, God said, this is going to be for a limited period of time. That's the goodness and mercy and compassion of God. So when they went, they had hope. I don't want to end on a downer here, guys. You know what this does for me? I'm going to be real honest here. When I read this stuff and I study these kings, here's what I, here's, this, is what, this is what I get out of it. Don't be an idiot. That's basically, if I could title this whole study, I'd, I'd call it, Don't Be an Idiot. Don't be stupid. Don't be screwing around with stuff you shouldn't be screwing around with. What are you doing that for? You know, you know six months ago, this guy called me up, asked me to have lunch with him. I had lunch with this guy. I've known this guy for a long time. You know why I know this guy? Uh, because uh, he does what I do. Because he's been teaching young people for 35 years about the church, and he's been teaching them about evangelism, and he's been teaching them about uh, how to have strong families. And we had lunch, and when we had lunch, he was leaving his position of teaching. Guy's 60 years old. Uh, he wasn't straight with me when we were having lunch. Because, see, what he didn't tell me was that after 38 years of marriage, he was leaving his wife. And as a result, he was having to leave his teaching position in a Christian school. And, and what he was talking to me about was, it's a new phase, it's a new chapter, it's a new, hey, you know what? You're a screw-up. <laughs> and let me tell you the new phase. You're an idiot. And let me tell you what's going to happen. God's going to withdraw his hand of favor and he's going to start disciplining you. And you know what? You're already an idiot because he's already working, and you're already a liar because you're lying to me. And you know what? You're going down the wrong path, man. You've been on the right path for 60 years, and you ought to be hitting your stride toward the finish line to finish strong in the next 15 or 20, and you're an idiot. I didn't say that because I didn't know because he was lying to me. I was thinking of him driving over here. So as we bring this to a close, with my pastor's heart, may I say to you, don't be an idiot. 
Don't be stupid. Don't go off on some road that you know God is not going to bless. Because you know what's going to happen? This is how you're going to wind up. You're going to wind up in bondage. You're going to wind up in exile. You're going to lose everything. Hey, you know what? This guy, six months later, because I know somebody that knows him, this guy is in trouble. He's out of money. He can't get work. He's in deep yogurt. And you know why he is? Because God's withdrawing his hand. And until he gets before God and repents with a broken spirit, he's in trouble. They, what I'm saying is, guys, they brought this on themselves. Let's not bring it on ourselves. Quite frankly, we can bring the favor of God on our lives. So let's do that. He wants to bless us. There's an old hymn, and it's titled, Rise Up, O Men of God. Wise up, O Men of God. Wise up. Let's pray. Lord, make us wise. Let us learn from these guys. Let us learn from the downfall of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. On a personal level, Lord, I mean, we can all talk about what's happening in the courts and, you know, in San Francisco and Portland and all these New York and all this stuff. But what's happening in my life? What's happening in my home? What's happening in my kingdom? So, Lord, we, we just say to you, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And Lord, if we believe that, we won't lie to guys and we won't say things that are not true trying to get a deal to come through. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. And Lord, when we say that, we ask you to deliver us from ourselves. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.